0: John chapter 2, verse 12 through 22. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. He pounded, The Jews then said, "It was. It has taken forty-six years to build this temple, and will you raise it up? How would? And will you raise it up in three days?" But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed in, believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken.
1: Well, good morning. Uh, we are picking back up in John's gospel uh where we left off a couple of weeks ago uh we took a break last week to address the, the 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 things that have occurred in our in our state and in our country uh and i mean just this morning just so you th- this isn't a thing that's just going to simply pass away um just this morning a lot of us have been getting updates uh that there are multiple officers shot in Baton Rouge. Um, They don't really know the details. Uh, And then I know a number of you uh, are friends with Shane Longoria. And yesterday we found out yesterday morning that his wife was abducted on her way to work, shot in the head twice, and she's uh, in critical condition. I'm reminded of just singing this morning that, that God's love is greater and God's love is stronger. And so that we cling to that hope when we hear things like this uh, and pray for that to become a reality. Uh, so continue to pray for the, uh, the family, uh, Shane's family and Shane's wife's family, the Kuypers, and uh, also with the tragedy that we heard about this morning. Pray for those officers and the families affected and pray for those involved with that. That, that God would penetrate their hearts and reveal His glory to them and that they might follow Him. So, we are going to pick up in John chapter 2. So while you're turning there, I'll remind you of where we left off. Jesus had, has just uh, performed His first sign. Uh, he was at a wedding in Cana and He turned water into wine. And if you remember, what we, what, what we discovered was that His focus with that sign was not really a public display of his glory, but in particular to his disciples that had just left everything to follow him. And so he's he's focused on their faith at that time. We discovered that, that Jesus was revealing himself. Verse 11 reads that this the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. And so we saw a pattern of belief that was established. Jesus performed a sign that revealed his glory and if you remember his glory the, the characteristics of who he is it's is his identity. He performs a sign that reveals his glory. Man sees that glory. They see who Christ is, and then man believes. So the pattern there is sign, glory, belief. This pattern is consistent with John's purpose, as he clearly states in John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31. And hopefully, by this point, if you've been with us since the beginning, you're starting to memorize that purpose. John wrote, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these signs are written so that you may believe. Believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So, John wants us, the readers of his gospel, to see Christ in the fullness of his glory. That's the purpose. He told us in John 1.14 that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and they, the disciples, saw His glory. And so He writes the things that He does so that we too would see it and that we would believe. My prayer this morning is that that would happen, that we would see the glory of Christ. This is how belief in Christ occurs for all men. For all of us, at some point, if we find ourselves trusting in Jesus Christ for salvation, we saw his glory. It was revealed to us. We saw it, and then we believed. We trusted. John continues to fulfill the purpose of his gospel by pointing us to the same pattern of belief in our passage this morning. Only this time we're going to see a different pattern to go along with it. We'll also see the pattern of disbelief. Disbelief in the face of the glory of Christ. Oddly enough, this pattern looks very similar to the pattern of belief. The results are just different. And we'll see that as we study this morning. So let's get into our passage and first look at the pattern of belief in verses 12 through 17. Remember this pattern. It's sign, glory, belief. So let's first look at this sign. Verses 12 through 16. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Verse 12 starts with John giving us the details. Of their travels. He's he's an eyewitness to all of this. He says that after the wedding in Cana was over, the celebration has died down. They traveled south to Capernaum. Jesus went with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples and stayed there for a few days. At this point, that group of disciples is made up of six it's our author, John, and his brother, James, and then our four disciples that we saw were called by Jesus in chapter 1. Now, as I was studying this week, I, I couldn't help but wonder about how enjoyable that time might have been. I mean, you think about it. They spend a week with Jesus at a wedding, it's a celebration. Then they get to go on a road trip with Jesus, and they stay with him for a few days with his family. I imagine whenever the disciples are grieving over the death of Christ, this memory might have come up. Or perhaps whenever they're being persecuted, after Christ has now commissioned them to go and make disciples of all nations, and they start spreading out and they're facing persecution for that, they might go back to this memory. And think about how much, how how blessed they were in that time, looking forward once again to whenever they would reunite with him. same is true for us. We've had, in our lifetime, good moments with our Savior. Let's remember those. There's not much else to say here. I mean, these are just details, except for maybe if you've been led to believe that that Jesus' mother Mary remained a virgin throughout the rest of her life after the birth of Christ, this is one of many verses that you would have to explain, because we see reference here to Jesus' brother's, And it's differentiated between his brothers and the disciples. So it's not like the same group. But then in verse 13, we start to get into the setting for our sign. The Passover of the Jews was at hand. This is the annual celebration of the grace and mercy that God granted Israel when they were in Egypt as captives. And in in that moment, God had been sending plagues and the last, the tenth plague that he had was the killing of the firstborn in Egypt, but he would pass over Israel as long as they had sacrificed the lamb and spread the blood on the the doorposts. Jesus, like the devout Jew that he was, goes up to Jerusalem. Now let me explain maybe a little bit about the population here at this time. Typically, The normal population in Jerusalem would have been about 300,000. But when this celebration occurred annually, it would swell up, some say, between 1 million. Josephus, the historian, goes all the way up to 3 million, possibly. Because you have the Jews who have been spread out due to persecution. They're all traveling back to the temple. They're celebrating. This is the time of the Passover feast. And for them to make sacrifices and worship to God. So that's the audience. Now, I realize not all three million probably witnessed this, but it kind of gives you the idea. It's, it's a densely populated area at this time. When we get into verse 14, and Jesus goes into the temple. Now, I know Blake has spent some time uh, discussing what the temple was like for us whenever we were studying Ephesians. And I, in reference to last week when we discussed how the Gentiles were once far off the temple was in mind when Paul was talking about that. Because if you were to go into the temple, you enter the walls surrounding it and you find yourself in the outer courts. And the more you moved inward in the temple, the closer you would get to God's presence, which was found in the Holy of Holies. So you entered the wall, enter the gates, and you're in the outer courts, the Gentiles. That was as far as a Gentile could get to God. That was as close as they could get. So when Paul says, you who were once far off, he has that in mind. You, you go forward, and then you have the court of the women. That was as far as a Jewish woman could have gone in the temple. And then you get to the court of Israel. So a common Jewish man, that's where his barrier was. He couldn't progress past that. Then you get into the, the priestly court for the priests, all the, all the way up into the temple, into the Holy of Holies, where only the high priest could go once a year. So that's the temple. When Jesus comes in, he's standing in the outer courts, the court of the Gentiles. This is a highly populated area for this time because not, now you not only have the Jews who are there and they have to go through this area, but that you also have the Gentiles. that They would have been here. And when Jesus enters the temple, he finds some merchants selling oxen, sheep, and pigeons. Now, why would he be doing that? Why would those men be selling oxen, sheep, pigeons? Well, think about it. You've got Jews who have been dispersed, spread out all over the region. It is very impractical for them to bring their own oxen to Jerusalem with them. So what they do is they travel in, and when they get there, that's when they purchase the animal that they're going to sacrifice. It's a good business model here. There is demand. You've got some people, an influx of people, who are coming in to make sacrifices and they don't have anything to sacrifice. So these merchants, under the employment of the Jewish religious, set up their booths in the outer courts of the Gentiles. So it could be a one-stop shop. You come in, you negotiate a price, you purchase your animal, head right on in, keep going. Jesus also found money changers set up in the outer courts of the Gentiles. Each visiting Jew would also be responsible to pay the temple tax. But remember, they're coming from places outside of Jerusalem, so when they get there, it's like if you were to travel to another country, you're going to have to exchange currency so that you can buy things in that country that you're in. It's the same thing here. The tax had to be paid with the local currency. So again, good business model. Let's put them right in the middle of the temple. Everybody's got to come through here. They can exchange their currency. In exchange for this convenience, they exploited people. Historically, scholars believe that the the exchange rate would have been about 10%. So if I were to bring in 100 dollars to exchange, they would give me 10 ba- they would exchange it for 10. That was low. I understand like when we went to Kenya, 100 dollars there is like 1,000. Very similar. But that's the economy there. This was low for their economy. They were abusing people. It was a very lucrative, lucrative business model. And what is Jesus' response? To put it mildly, it was disapproval, right? John wrote that Jesus made a whip. The animals would would have been tied up with cords. And so he took these cords and he fashioned a whip together, and he starts chasing the merchants out, chasing the oxen and the sheep out. He's angry, I mean, the image here is he's yelling at the merchants, get out of here, and he's whipping those oxen. You imagine, remember, this is a densely populated area, and now you've got huge animals that are running around trying to escape this madman, Jesus, with a whip. You've got sheep being herded out of there. Not only that, but then Jesus addresses the money changers. Jesus goes to them. He pours out their coins and flips their tables over. He's angry. The pigeon sellers didn't get off easy either. I don't know, maybe he just didn't release them. He could have lifted each cage and just let them all go. But instead, he goes to those people that were selling the pigeons and says, get out of here. Get these things out of here. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Why is Jesus so upset? because he walks into his father's house and he finds it desecrated by capitalism. This was to be a place of worship. This is the temple of which Psalm 84 states, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. And instead of being this place of refuge from wickedness, They've brought it in. And they've turned his father's house into a business venture. Now you might ask, but weren't they helping people? They were providing the goods, the the means that the people needed to worship. And they made it convenient for them. Why did Jesus get that mad about something like that? Look down at verses 23 through 25. We're going to go more in depth into that passage next week, but it's going to be helpful for us to answer that question. Why was Jesus so upset when it seems as though they're providing something good? They're they're being righteous and allowing people to worship. We need to understand a little bit about Jesus' attributes, his character. John wrote, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he, knew, for he himself knew what was in man. It appears righteous, but Jesus knows what's in man. He knows what's in their hearts. When he walks in that temple, he sees straight through and he knows their thoughts and their motives. He sees people who are captured by the love of money. They love money more than they love God. And he isn't just angry because they're sinners in pursuit of the love of money. Even more so because of the way they dressed it up as a religious act. We would know that today as, as wolves in sheep's clothing. They are coming acting like they're religious, acting like they're righteous people, hiding, masking the evil that's in their hearts. There's no desire here to worship God, there's only a desire to make the next buck. Now, I understand this God no longer dwells in a temple built by human hands. Go read Acts 7 or Acts 17. So while we consider this school cafeteria a place of worship, for those of us who are in Christ, we could go right down the street to College Street Park and do the same thing. We could go to somebody's house. We, we, we started there. We've done that. This is not a temple. For those of us who are in Christ, the temple is made up of us. We are individually stones of that temple. But I still wonder, what would Jesus' response be today if he were to walk into some of our worship services in our churches? Would it be similar? I'm confident that it would be. Because we have wolves in sheep's clothing. We have people who dress up their evil hearts with an external appearance of righteousness. Righteousness. Men and women who claim that they are allowing people to worship God as long as you give them another 20 in the plate when it comes across. Men who will preach, men and women who will preach, if you give money to the church, God will bless you. That is a false theology. These same men will have their own private jets live in mansions. It's the modern day Jews, the Jewish leaders, exploiting those who desire and hunger after the Word of God. They give it to them and they dress it up as righteousness, but it's really evil. Now, obviously, I'm not saying that you shouldn't give your finances to support church ministry. I mean, while we were in Kenya, Blake specifically addressed that. How... how giving of your finances, doing it generously and cheerfully, is an act of sanctification. You're, you're giving back to God what is already His. And you're reminding yourself that I'm dependent upon the God of the universe who owns everything for my provision, not Franklin, Lincoln, Washington. As a church, we encourage you to give not out of compulsion. Go, go read this on your way out. We don't pass a plate, right? But we put a sign up here that says generosity, and it has this verse that you would give not out of compulsion because God desires a cheerful giver. But there are some who would use a pulpit to increase their personal wealth, they're out for greedy gain. And that type of evil, dressed up as righteousness, repulses Jesus. So here's our sign Jesus cleansed the temple. Now you might say, well, that didn't seem much like a sign. I mean, last last time we talked about how he turned water into wine. Some of his later signs, he's healing people from sickness, he's giving people sight who were born blind, he's raising people from the dead. How is this a sign? Well, remember, John doesn't call... it. it might, this might have been a miracle. I've read some stuff where they say that he actually drove the whole population out of the temple. I don't doubt that he could have. But remember, John doesn't call these miracles. He calls them signs. Because they're significant. There's a significance to what he's doing. He is revealing his glory. Now, we may not see it initially... But if you look at verse 17, if we follow that pattern, right? We saw the sign. Where's the glory? Look at the disciples, because they saw it. In verse 17, His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The disciples saw this outburst from Christ, and they remembered a psalm that would have been passed down to them throughout generations, verbally. They recalled the words from Psalm 69, we know that now as a, as a messianic psalm. It's pointing to Christ. Psalm 69.9 says, For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. And there, right in front of their eyes, they saw the fulfillment of that psalm. They saw Jesus, a man who was consumed with zeal, for his father's house. In calling the temple his father's house, Jesus was claiming to be the promised Messiah. He was claiming to be the Son of God, Christ. In the zeal shown for his father's house, they saw a man who was consumed with reverence for God. And while at this point when Jesus says this, they had not seen the reproach of man fall on him, They would experience that one day too. It seems that Jesus is still, while putting on a public display of glory, the focus is still on the disciples. He hasn't, this is his first public sign, his first public act, but it's geared towards the disciples still. Now before we can we conclude that pattern of belief, right? Sign glory belief. We have an interruption in verses 18 through 21 and we see the pattern of disbelief. And it's displayed by the Jews who confronted Jesus about his disruption in the temple. So the Jews said to him, "What sign do you show us for doing these things?" Jesus answered them, "Destroy this temple, And in three days, I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. So Jesus has performed the sign, cleansing the temple out of zeal for worship of God. This sign revealed who Jesus is. It revealed His glory. He is Christ. He is Son of God in the flesh. The difference between the disciples' response and the Jews' response is the only difference then. The sign revealed the glory, and it's now either belief or disbelief. Instead of believing, the Jews asked, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Now think about what Jesus has just done. He has just called them out. He has just pointed out to them, hey, your hearts are evil. You are making my father's house a a place that at this point specifically is designed to be a place of worship and you have turned it into a way for you to gain personal wealth. He rebukes them and their response is, Not dealing with that issue, but who do you think you are calling me out on that? What makes you think that you have the authority to point that out to us and to disrupt this? Who do you think you are? What sign do you show us for doing these things? Give us a sign. Twice in Matthew's Gospel, we see a similar request from the Jewish leaders. In Matthew 12, verses 38 through 40, it says, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Look at Jesus' response. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But then he's still gracious. He says, But no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Similar question comes up in Matthew 16, 1-4. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. In our passage, despite the evil motives that are coming, right? They're challenging his authority. They're not dealing with the issue of sin. They're trying to sidestep it. Even though that's the motives behind their question, trying to escape the proper judgment, Jesus still graciously gives them the promise of a sign. And at this time, these were words that would have been difficult to understand. You see that. Not only in the response from the Jews, but also John says, it isn't until after he raises from the dead that they were able to realize what Jesus was talking about. This was a difficult thing to understand. But Jesus still gives it to them. He says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And then John tells us, he was referring to the temple of his body. So what was Jesus saying? Well, there was an actual physical destruction of that temple. God allowed that to happen. And to this day, that temple has not been rebuilt. But John says he was referring to the temple of his body. So Jesus, at one in the tame time, son- one and the same time was declaring to the Jews that he was the promised Messiah that would be put to death and that he would raise himself up three days later. And he was declaring that the true worship of God would only come from those who find themselves in him rather than in the temple. That Christ was replacing the temple. He's the cornerstone. These words were difficult to understand by men who weren't keyed into things of the Spirit as so so often that occurs. You'll see in John's Gospel, the disciples even, they're focused on the physical, the physical aspects. Look Look at the different responses here. First, the disbelief. The Jews say it took 46 years to build this temple. And you think you can raise it up in three days? you're crazy and that's the thing when when you look at the the things that jesus said that's uh, probably c.s lewis or somebody you either have to come i think it is c.s lewis a mere christianity you either have to come to the conclusion that jesus is crazy or that he was telling the truth you can't there's no middle ground how can you possibly say oh well he was just a little off He says, destroy this temple and in three days I'll build it back up. Referring to his physical body. And so these people only saw the physical elements of the world and they missed out completely on the spiritual work that was occurring right in front of their face. The sign occurred, the glory was revealed, disbelief. What happens is man denies it. Man rejects it. Man suppresses the truth, Romans 1. Man runs away from it. Or man challenges the authority of it. Or asks for more evidence. That's the pattern of disbelief. In contrast, look at the response we have from the disciples. Yes, it occurred later, but they still had this proper response. They finish out the pattern of belief with the sign revealing the glory and them seeing that glory and believing. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. It ends just like the miracle at the wedding in Cana. Jesus does it, and the disciples believed. Jesus does this sign and fulfills that sign and the disciples believed. We don't see this description about the Jews. And they were in the same audience. But the disciples believed, they believed all of Scripture and the word that Jesus had said in their presence. So what are some ways to apply this? What are some implications for us? Now, this is a little difficult It's very difficult sometimes when you preach and you you're trying to apply it and you're thinking honestly like I want to encourage you right like i don't I don't want to like beat people down with the word. It makes it a little difficult when all Jesus does here is rebuke people. I was talking to Natalie last night and I was like I just feel like all the applications are so, like, leave here miserable today. But they're not. Some of them are, though. So let's deal with those. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul talks about the church collectively being God's temple. And then in, verse, and in chapter 6, 19, what Paul had said about the church collectively he also talks about specifically within individuals that we are the temple of God and dwelled by the Holy Spirit. So we are not our own. We are not our own because God, by His Spirit, is occupying this space. And we are not our own because we were bought with a price. So let's, let's walk into the temple, right? Let's take a step into The church, let's take a step into our own hearts, like Jesus did with his disciples, and let's examine what evil is there? What do you find? Do you find desire for selfish gain? Do you desire personal satisfaction in the things of this world? Whatever that may be. And do you try to dress it up like it's religious, like it's righteous? If that's where you are, and this is something that you know, just in a moment you may not be able to do, but let's think about this throughout throughout the rest of the service while we're singing songs of praise to the God who's freed us from that. Let's consider that throughout the rest of the week. What evil exists in this temple? and pray that God would chase it out just like Jesus chased it out of the temple that day in Jerusalem. Pray that the Spirit would point it out to you just like Jesus pointed it out to the Jews that day in that temple. Which brings us to another point of application. How do you respond when your sin is pointed out to you by the Holy Spirit or by another brother or sister? Are you defensive, like the Jews were in our passage this morning? Do you challenge the authority of your brother or sister? Who do you think you are that you can call me out on my own sin? Don't judge me. What authority do you have to judge me? Let me tell you something. If that's where you are this morning, Jesus Christ himself gave your brother or sister that authority. And Jesus was given authority. All authority in heaven and earth was given to him by his father. And so he said, go, go read Matthew. Matthew chapter 7, Matthew 18. In Matthew 7, he says, judge not lest you, lest you be judged. And everybody jumps on that one. We all love that one, right? You're not supposed to judge me. But if you keep reading in that passage, Jesus says, why are you pointing out the speck in your brother or sister's eye when you have a plank in your own eye. And then he goes on to say, first, remove the plank from your own eye. You need to deal with your own sin first and recognize that it exists because it is is preventing you from seeing clearly. And then, go point out the speck. You go to Matthew 18, and Jesus gives specific instructions on how to do that you first go to your brother or sister one-on-one. And if they don't repent, then you go with two. Go with a group that are in agreement. Hey, we care about you. The goal here is restoration, by the way. It's not rebuke and making people angry. The goal is that they would see their sin because you are pointing it out to them and they would repent and come back to Christ. They would come back and live righteous lives. And if they don't listen to two or three, then you go to your church. You go to your pastors and say, hey, there's an issue here. The pastors address it. If there's no repentance, Jesus says, have nothing to do with them. Not because you don't love them, but because you love them. Give them over to the desires of their flesh so that the Holy Spirit may draw them back. So are you trying to challenge the authority when people, brothers or sisters, point out sin in your life? They have authority to do so. What about the Holy Spirit? When you feel conviction from the Holy Spirit, maybe as you're reading God's Word, or you're listening to God's Word being taught, being preached, do you try to suppress it really quick? Uh, they're getting ready to touch on a, on a subject, a topic that makes me uncomfortable because I know I'm living in sin, so I'm going to push that down. Or do you ask for more evidence? Uh, maybe I'm not understanding that clearly. I need to see some more. Give me another sign. I would remind you what Jesus said. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. So that's the negative, right? Let's deal with that. But while you do that, while you examine your hearts, don't forget who Christ is, don't forget the gospel. Don't forget what we learn about in John chapter 1. You've seen his glory. You've seen who he is. He is full of grace and truth. And when you turn away from sin, when you repent and you come back to him, you do not find condemnation. But what do you find? Grace upon grace upon grace upon grace and it's never ending because He's full of it. And it wells up from within Him. And if you haven't followed this pattern of belief yet, if you haven't seen the glory of Christ and believed, if you haven't recognized His work on the cross that He did on your behalf where He desired To reconcile you back to his father, where your debt that was owed, which was death, was erased because Christ did it for you. If that's you, I hope that you've seen the glory of Christ this morning. Sometimes it's hard because the standard is be holy as I am holy. And we all fall short of that. And if you have not come to that realization yet, I pray that you would see it, but then also see that you have a Savior. And what we saw this morning was that He sees into our hearts, that He knows what is in man. And that may make you feel a little uncomfortable because we try to hide things from each other, and we're able to do so, but Jesus sees right into your heart. And you know what kind of evil junk is in there. But even in seeing that, Jesus said, "I'm going to go to cross for that." I love you despite that. If you'll believe, it's the same pattern. The glory is revealed.
0: Will you believe?